Welcome to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, I sit down with David Bayer, an investor with Amplify Partners. We talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence, the challenges he's seeing in AI adoption, and what he thinks is missing from the AI conversation. Enjoy the episode. Thank you for joining me today, David. Sure. So let's start with a bit about your background and how you made your way into investing. Sure. So I am formerly an entrepreneur. I have been involved in the foundation of two companies, one called Chart.io, which is an analytics as a service company. I was a co-founder there, and I was in the early team of a healthcare IT company called Patients Know Best, which is based in the UK and is one of the world's leading patient control medical record companies. Over that time, I initially slowly, but gotten at a faster pace involved in angel investing and realized investing is probably where, one, I think I can be a lot better than as an operator, and two, something that I think uh, fits, fits how I see the world. And uh, joined up with Amplify about three years ago, and I'm in there since. And what got you interested in AI, and what are you learning so far in your research? Well, the what's compelling about the sort of machine learning and, and AI space is is the the how expansive it is in terms of the sheer number of applications. And in particular, what I find partic- I, what I find particularly interesting about artificial intelligence investing is you find it cropping up in places that you wouldn't expect. And as an investor, you do want to spend your time, at least you should be spending your time looking for opportunities where the herd really isn't headed. And so you're finding uh, really, we're finding really compelling opportunities uh, applying AI to uh, transportation, to material science, to healthcare, to areas where you wouldn't naturally expect there to be an application, or at least where the sort of zeitgeist of Silicon Valley wouldn't be directed given the kinds of consumer ap- applications and the other things that investors here typically spend their time thinking about. Right. And was there like one point in time, like the first thing, what was the first thing that attracted you? Like, was there a particular Black, technology? Or? Uh, there was no particular technology. What attracted me initially is just my intellectual curiosity. I find, I find the content itself fascinating. The combination of math, statistics, and computing power just on its face, mm-hmm. I found to be really interesting. Uh, and I was always, as a kid, uh, you know, intrigued by all the futuristic renditions of what an AI-type society would look like. I read Asimov as a kid. So this is something that had always been in the back of my mind. Uh, the ability to, I had this sort of feeling, you know, every once in a while I'd go into work thinking, I'm incredibly fortunate to be able to at least have some minor impact potentially on creating the future that I read about in science fiction as a kid. Right. And so what are the biggest challenges you're observing around AI adoption? Uh, that That's an uh, interesting question, one which I'll talk about uh, in my presentation. The AI adoption is actually, it, it's such a multifaceted question. It's something that touches on policy at, at, the, at the government level. It touches on uh, labor markets and questions around equity and fairness. It touches on broad commercial questions around industries and how they evolve over time. Uh, and so there's so many, many ways to, to address this. I think a good way to, to think about AI adoption at the broader, more abstract level of sectors uh, or, or categories is to actually zoom down a bit and look at what is it actually replacing. So and the way to do that is to think at the atomic level of jobs and, and work. What is work? And people have been you know, talking about uh, questions of productivity and efficiency for for quite some time, but a good way to think of it from the lens of the computer is or machine learning is to divide work into four categories. It's a two by two matrix of cognitive and manual, cognitive versus manual work, and routine versus non-routine work. 
in the 90s uh, sort of internet and computer revolution, for the most part, tackled the routine work that, that uh, spreadsheets and things that would otherwise word processing, things mm -hmm. that could be specified by an explicit set of instructions. The more interesting stuff that's happening now, and this should be happening over the next decade, is how does software start to impact non-routine, uh, both cognitive and manual work. Cognitive work is tricky. It can be divided into two categories, uh, things that are analytical, so math and science and questions like that, and things that are more sort of interpersonal and social. So sales, uh, being a good leader, right? And then non-routine work, you would think, uh, the first instinct is to think, well, if uh, the job seems simple to us as people, so cleaning a room, right? On, on, for us, at first blush, seems like something pretty much anyone who's able could do. Actually, it's incredibly difficult. And there's this bizarre sort of um, unexpected result that the hard problems are easier to automate. Things like logic, the easier problems are incredibly hard to do. Things that require visuospatial orientation, navigating uh, complex and potentially changing terrain, things that we have basically been programmed over millennia in our brains to accomplish actually is very difficult to do from the perspective of coding that set of instructions into a computer. And so a good way to think about AI adoption and then eventually the challenges of it is to start at that job level and per industry, and people have done some work, Michael Osborne in particular at Oxford has done work on this, and then start to roll up and, and to find which aspects of this particular job are immune or non-immune to automation at the current level of technology, and then start to aggregate that into sectors of the economy, and then come up essentially with scoring and, and, and predictions on all else being equal, if you had essentially infinite money, what percentage of this industry could be potentially automated using machine learning and some other basic automation. Once you've done that, you now have sort of a uh, uh, your potential score. But that, in reality, doesn't necessarily reflect because there's so many other considerations as to why a particular industry is going to adopt certain technologies. And that touches beyond the technology itself, it relates to things like how competitive is that industry, right? If the industry is driven in a monopolistic fashion, the incentive to innovate is reduced. How tight are the margins in a particular industry that'll drive the need for cost savings? What does labor cost in that particular industry? Or what's the sort of average labor cost? It's interesting, for example, uh, Osborne, the guy I mentioned before, a professor at, at, at Oxford, uh, had sort of in broad strokes, and again, this of course only an estimate, speculates that 47% of U.S. work, work in the U.S. is subject to automation over some relatively indefinable time period, but given technology that exists today. The number gets um, higher theoretically for countries outside the U.S., mm -hmm. right, where education and skill levels are lower. But counterintuitively, those countries are actually less immune to the threat of automation, at least at the moment, because labor costs are so low. Labor costs in many ways help drive the need to automate, which is why you have debates over the minimum wage, because in some cases, especially in the um, service industry and in restaurants and retail, that provides an incentive for managers to make decisions on cost-saving automations. Sort of a canonical example of that is the use of ordering kiosks in restaurants to replace the waitstaff. And so while it, it won't necessarily replace them fully, it gives that, that business leverage to hire less, essentially, and to drive down um, wage costs as a result. So how does AI get adopted in industry? It's very, very difficult to say. It involves so many different factors. Uh, as an investor, my perspective is that of the startup. And so we, 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 we're, we're funding businesses that are, you know, have a hypothesis that a particular segment of a particular industry uh, is subject to this kind of innovation. And um, we back them hoping that they can either do it themselves or force 
the industry to come to come along to it. And you've put together a framework to help guide adoption going forward. Can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah. So the, the framework is the point of the framework is to help situate us in, in some historical context. It's guided to a large part by an economic historian named Carlota Perez. She wrote a book called Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital. And the idea is to trace how general technologies, major technological disruptions, evolve in, in, in an economy over time as it relates to how financial capital interacts with it. So venture and any number of other type investors would be components in that. So for example, one sort of key time period is that of the mass production, the automobile, right? Society, it starts with a, with a whole frenzy of investment around that core initial technology, uh, the internal combustion engine, for example. And then the complements invest in, then society sort of reorganizes around that investing complements. And you start to see the, the effects of that general technology unfold. So shopping malls, there was, came about as the result of, uh, investments in cars, which allowed people to get to them, right? And so now we're kind of on the tail end of the computer and information technology revolution. And the question is, the question I sort of have in my mind is the nineties and two thousands was that was the simply applying computers to business and communication its own revolution? And does machine learning and AI constitute a new category? Or is machine learning uh, sort of the final complement to, to, to extract the productivity out of that initial sort of silicon revolution, so to speak? And there's this economic historian, Paul David, also out of Oxford, had written an interesting thing looking at American factories and how they adapted to electrification, because uh, they were previously, a lot of them were steam powered. And the, the initial adoption was to simply was, was, was really with a lack of imagination. So they used motors where steam used to be right. and hadn't really redesigned anything. And they didn't really get much of any productivity. It was only when that new crop of managers, when that crop of old managers was replaced with new managers, that people fully redesigned the factory to what we now recognize as the modern factory. And so the question is, the technology itself, from our perspective as investors, is, is insufficient. You need business process and workplace rethinking. And so an area of research as it relates to this model of AI adoption is how reconstructable, how is there an index to describe how particular industries or particular workflows or businesses can be remodeled to use machine learning with more leverage, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think that speaks to how those managers and in those instances are going to look at ROI, right? Because if the payback period for a particular investment is uncertain or really long, they're less likely to adopt it, which is why you're seeing a lot of pickup of robots in, in factories. Because you can, you, can, you can specify and drive the, the ROI, the payback period for that is coming down because it's incredibly clear, well-defined. In other industries, for example, using machine learning in, in a legal setting for a law firm, uh, there are parts of it, for example, uh, technology assisted review where the ROI is pretty clear. You can measure it in time saved. Um, but other technologies that help assist in prediction or judgment uh, for, say, higher level thinking, the return on that is also pretty unclear. And so a lot of the interesting technologies coming out these days from the sort of, from in particular deep learning, enable things that operate at a higher level than we're used to. At the same time, though, they're building products around that that do relatively high level things that are hard to quantify. Um, the productivity gains from that are, are, are not necessarily clear. And so thinking about this model, so to speak, I think is the first point is how automatable is a particular industry mm -hmm. based on the jobs and their threat of automation. And then you can divide, you can go all the way down the rabbit hole into subtasks, how those people perform that task. For example, in legal, you can, you know, studies show how much of a lawyer's time is spent on what? Review, interpersonal work, writing, 
right? And then you can sort of pick apart and say, this is the sort of circle that's automatable. The next question is, in that particular industry, what are the what are the pull and push factors that will lead to the adoption of machine learning? And that is completely idiosyncratic industry by industry. It's, it's difficult to, to generalize except to say what are general commercial reasons um, that new technology gets adopted. But when it comes to machine learning, there are so many different applications and it's touching on so many different business processes and decision processes that coming up with a single answer is just impossible. Right. And kind of along those lines, what industries are you observing in your experience um, that stand to benefit the most from AI technology? And in what ways will they benefit? Well, I would break the question into two. Um, the, um, to some extent, this, this touches on broader sort of social issues. Who benefits? Um, it, it, on the question of who benefits, I would ask, does it benefit the shareholders or does it benefit labor in that particular industry? And, you know, this beyond the scope of this particular discussion, but when it comes to sort of business and stock price and shareholders and uh, shareholder value, broadly speaking, the sort of the top ones are ones that we're now familiar with. Transportation being probably one of the most eye-catching ones right now. Self-driving everything. Uh, we have an investment in a company that's doing last mile delivery. So if you want to if you're e-commerce or if you're a food delivery business and you want to get food to someone's door, but you don't want to use human labor to drive around, say FedEx, mm-hmm. um, you think you can do that at lower cost with some combination of human, but also robots that can navigate sidewalks or go up to apartment building and essentially have that package ready. Uh, self-driving trucking is, is a particularly interesting one since it employs so many people. Uh, there are a number of companies, I think Auto, the one that Uber just bought, for example, Plans to offer freight services that are that are automated. Uh, people have been companies have been testing this in, in Europe and I think also in the United States. I th- places where, where where we've invested and I've invested, I think healthcare is a particularly interesting one, just not only in terms of its financial impact but its social impact. Uh, a lot of a lot of medical decisions are uh, when you when you when you look at them in retrospect, kind of scary, right? So I think Google had done some work around and their deep and I think Google Brain team around diabetic retinopathy and trying to basically look at images of eyes and, and give you some kind of sense or diagnosis of, or, or at least an alert to whether there's something there. Uh, and when they'd done their own internal work on trying to compare decisions between physicians looking at that, they found that not only do physicians frequently disagree, a particular physician will disagree with himself or herself later in the day uh, with, at, a, at, a, at a startling rate. And so how do you bring, how do you bring that, uh, how do you bring in particular deep learning when it comes to image data? To healthcare, and we're investors in a company called Analytic, which is looking to apply deep learning to all facets of radiology and standardize in such a way that error is is dramatically reduced, plus speed to a decision, uh, in which case, uh, in many cases, can help affect outcomes because you don't have to wait, uh, especially in emergency situations. Uh, those are the, the healthcare is another industry, for example, that I think is uh, incredibly promising, not just from a financial but also an impact perspective. And what do you think is missing from the AI conversation today? Well, one thing I think is, rather than missing, I'd say something that there's too much of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think hype is, is one of them. Uh, too many businesses now are pitching AI as almost as though um, it's uh, you know, batteries included, right? And I think that's dangerous because it's going to potentially lead to overinvestment and things that overpromise. And then when they underdeliver, have this sort of deflationary effect on, on people's attitudes towards the space. But uh, it almost belittles the, the problem itself. Not, not everything requires sort of the, the latest whiz-bang technology, 
in fact, you know, sort of the dirty secret of machine learning and, and in a way, venture capital is so many problems could be solved with just the applying simple regression analysis, right? Yet, yet very few people, very few industries do the, the bare minimum. And in terms of speaking actually about industry adoption, I think data readiness uh, is a pretty good predictor of how quickly a particular business and, and by extension an industry will adopt machine learning because you can buy all the software that you want. If you still are struggling to pull data from you know disparate silos, uh, clean it up, make sense of it, you're not going to get anywhere. And so in terms of the that index of, of readiness, I'm hoping that I or someone can do research on trying to feed uh, sort of data readiness, uh, data maturity into that into that equation to help predict how 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 quickly a particular industry will adopt it. But in terms of uh, what's missing from the AI conversation, uh, I think just more focus on it in a way. And from the research perspective, relative to the to the impact potential impact of AI, uh, I think Sam Altman and Y Combinator's request for proposal, which where they're trying to say here are the areas that we're interested in, put it well. He said relative to the potential impact of this of AI in the world, it seems that too few people, I'm paraphrasing, are working on it. That's not to say there's been a huge increase in it, where Google and Facebook and academia are in a way kind of blending together uh, to produce this sort of hybrid academic commercial organization. But I wish there were more uh, organizations doing basic research around it. OpenAI is a good example of one that's that's come up recently, also associated with, with, with Y Combinator. But in terms of anything else that's missing, I think the broader question, and this is something that sort of bedevils us as investors, of trying to find machine learning applications and interesting global industries, uh, there are not enough people in those industries who come out to Silicon Valley to pair up with the people who know machine learning. So it's not that the technology itself is in any way deficient. Of course, I would, would love to see more work on it, at least basic research and upward. But finding and pairing technology expertise with domain expertise is the hardest thing that we do. It's difficult to find someone who may be somewhere in the middle of Kansas who's not that connected to Silicon Valley, uh, who, who, who pops up their head and says, Hey, I think there's an interesting application here. Let me let me marry up with someone who knows how to do that work, and then go at it. Uh, it's it's that connection between the trillions and trillions of dollars in global industry that occur with very little awareness of what's happening in our tiny little bubble out here. So, switching gears just a little bit, I want to touch on the book that mm-hmm. you wrote this year, "The Future of Machine Intelligence," where you conducted a series of interviews with people. Um, what was something that you learned through those interviews that surprised you or was unexpected? Uh, I wasn't expecting uh, the variability of research topics. I had assumed that most people would, in the last couple of years, have oriented themselves around deep learning since it's such a, a, a vibrant topic now. But there are people who are sort of toiling away at really interesting subcategories of machine learning and applying them in areas where I personally would not have imagined they would exist, for example, in control theory, hmm. right? The, the notion of taking machine learning and applying it to dynamical systems where you want to trade off robustness with accuracy, right? Where you can't, like, if you want to build a car that, that learns through machine learning rather than being driven by sort of physical principles or plane that, that, that for example, might learn through machine learning rather than being designed around um, aerodynamics, not that you necessarily want to do that, but if you were to apply it in that instance, uh, the plane can't crash, right? And so how do you take machine learning that's been in the lab for a long time and has been used and, and developed and sort of grown up around, say, the ad industry or areas that, that have driven profit in, in Silicon Valley and apply that to life or death situations, mission-critical systems, 
Uh, and how do you measure that in a way that you can go to a manager or to an executive or to uh, some officer in the government and say, I can give you certain guarantees about how this works. And, and I can explain to you what the trade-offs are. And then you can make that decision yourself. Another interesting and unexpected notion was topology as, 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 a, as something that informs what machine learning can do. Those are the areas that I found most surprising. Could I have been somewhat familiar with deep learning? It's an area I'd spent some time in. It's people doing things in what, what sort of the mainstream or consensus might find orthogonal that I actually found the, the most, the most uh, interesting um, and pleasant surprises. All right. And sometimes we get the more interesting products and applications from, from people working on the, in the fringe areas. Yeah. I'd been sort of, I'd grown up in a world where, you know, my, both, well, my dad was a scientist and became a physician, but always taught that the, the weird scientist working in the fringes is more likely to sort of make that discovery that shifts the paradigm, uh, so to speak, than someone just following sort of the, the, the well-worn path in a particular field. So I've always had a kind of um, admiration for people doing bizarre things. Right. Uh, and I was surprised to find quite a few of them for the book. That's great. So to close our conversation today, I'm curious to know what and or who is inspiring you? Is this in general? Or? In general. Well, given, given the recently released program for interplanetary colonization, I would say Elon Musk. Actually, I find him to be probably the most inspiring entrepreneur outside of our portfolio, of course, that I've ever actually seen, given his versatility in jumping from cars to solar to space and, and payments beforehand. I find that, well, actually, I'll, I'll expand on that. What inspires me, and this is in the context of my work, is just how dogged uh, entrepreneurs, the good ones, can be. It's a trait that I actually don't have. I don't, I don't share the, that same sort of ruthless and almost ferocious desire to make something happen around a very narrow slice of the world. I think it's a, it's a, it's a trait that may be in common with graduate students, right? Where they're, where they're kind of zooming in on a, on a tiny little piece of the world and, and spending years trying to come to some insight or, or to, or to change the field through some observation. Uh, it's, it's that, that, that sort of devotion to a important, but still circumscribed part of making the world better, I think is fascinating. I'm more of a generalist as an investor, so I, I, it's, it's something I kind of maybe have a bit of envy of and wish I could absorb myself. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today, David. This has been fascinating. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Jen Webb, and David is at dbayer123. If you like the show, remember to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Oh.